0: Well, the year A.D. 162 marked the beginning of the fourth major persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius Antonius was emperor. He was a stoic, which meant he was supposed to be indifferent to pain and pleasure, but he definitely wasn't indifferent toward inflicting pain. Cruelties toward Christians during this time were so inhumane that witnesses were both shuddered with horror and marveled at the courage Of the sufferers. Depraved methods of torture were devised to inflict maximum pain and punishment. People's feet were crushed in presses and then they were forced to walk on nails and thorns. Red hot plates of brass were placed on exposed skin until they melted through to the bone. Countless were thrown to lions and ripped apart. There's an account of a less prominent Christian named Blandina. Blandina was a Christian lady with a weak constitution. They did not think she could resist much torture, but she could. And her fortitude was great. So great that her torturers became exhausted with her. So they took her into an amphitheater. They tied her to a post along with three others and they gave them as food to wild lions. While waiting, she prayed. She encouraged her companions. And throughout the whole time, the lions... Never touched her. This happened three times. I I guess they were full. But three times this happened. So they took her back, and she was so steadfast in faith, it was enraging her torturers. So they inflicted more severe punishments. She was scourged. She was put into a net, dragged by a wild bull. And then she was placed naked onto a red-hot chair. When she mustered up a few words, she exhorted those near her to hold fast, To their faith, her torturers, failing to make her recant, gave up and killed her with a sword. These are but of a few of the admittedly graphic tales, but true, that we need to hear of Christian persecution under the Roman Empire. John Fox in Fox's Book of Martyrs comments that the lives of early Christians consisted of persecutions above ground and prayers below ground. Above ground, they were slaughtered in the Colosseum. Below ground, they prayed and were buried in the catacombs. The ancient Roman catacombs were both temples and tombs. They formed a vast array of underground tunnels, some 600 miles of tunnels under Rome. And in these catacombs, there were stacks of compartments dug out into the walls. They were tombs. They would bury their dead there. Both pagan and Christians were buried there. And then the tombs would be covered with tile or marble. And then an epitaph would be inscribed or engraved or painted on the, on the covering. The early church frequented these catacombs both because it was a safe place to meet and because they were so often burying their loved ones. And later, these tombs were excavated and studied. And the skeletons themselves told the tale of persecution. They were excavating these Christian graves and they often produced skeletons where the heads were detached Ribs and shoulders were just crushed, and bones were scorched from fire. Yeah, excavators found this amazing paradox, almost a contradiction. In Christian tombs, they were finding all these skeletons indicating a cruel death and torture, but the epitaphs on these graves indicated that they were full of peace and joy. Though they seemed to face such great affliction, they all seemed to have so much peace. Here are a few examples from the Christian graves. Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Or victorious in peace and in Christ. Or lastly, being called away, he went in peace. And the full force of these epitaphs become clear when they're contrasted with the nearby pagan epitaphs, which had no hope, no peace in them. For example, live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else or I lift up my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20 though I had done no harm or once I was not now I am NOT I know nothing about it and it is no concern of mine and lastly traveler curse me not as you pass for I am in darkness and cannot answer what a, what a contrast and what's the explanation for this I mean here are all these people who live lives of comfort but they found no such comfort in death. But then there were these Christians who had lives of suffering, but found joy in death. There were these precious believers who knew and they experienced the truth that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Or that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. Or, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Whether they cross the threshold of death through execution or just normal means, they could say along with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Christians throughout the ages have been able to endure great suffering and persecution with joy because of the steadfast hope their proven faith produces. And the reason for this paradox of joy amidst Christian suffering, it's always been the same. Salvation by grace, through faith in Christ. This morning we come to yet another text in Scripture that guides us along this path. So if you haven't already, turn with me this morning to 1 Peter. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Here Peter, now like Paul, encourages us that though we may suffer in life, we have a future hope that can lead even to a present joy. And Peter tells us, like James, that our experiences of suffering come to us per the sovereign hand of God, and they're not without purpose. They're meant to perfect our saving faith. Read along with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Peter's opening to his first epistle here from verses 3 through 12. They form one long sentence in the Greek, but there's three clear trains of thought. In verses 3 through 5, salvation is viewed from the future with God center stage. Verses 6 through 9, salvation is viewed from the present with Christ's center stage. And then verses 10 through 12, salvation is viewed from the past with the spirit center stage. But the point is past, present, future, the triune God works to bring about his plan of salvation. And we must first really apprehend and understand this plan of salvation. It's it's absolutely foundational. Don't even bother with practical Christian living, which comes later, until you get down, you nail down this foundation. Today our focus is on verses 6 through 9, where Peter merges together our future hope with our present experience. How do these two fit together? Because here we have this, this future hope, this glorious salvation that awaits us, but then we have this present experience of suffering. How do we reconcile those two? How can these be? Peter explains this paradox. He shows the purpose of suffering and the means for enduring. And the key in it all is one word, faith. That's the theme in this section. By God, our faith is born. By trials, our faith is perfected. And since faith is a means of our salvation, that's a good thing. Even trials can be a good thing. But there's so much more in here. There's so many rich truths. So let's get into this text. Peter's focus is faith. So let's observe now five realities of a faith that saves. So that you may have a proven salvation. Five realities of a faith that saves so that you may have a proven salvation. The first one is this, the joy of faith. The joy of faith. Speaking of verses three through five, he begins verse six and he says, "In this, verses three through five, you greatly rejoice. In this, you greatly rejoice." So we learned last week our our new birth, our living hope, our salvation. They pr- should produce in us a great rejoicing. The single word in the Greek that's translated "greatly rejoice." It's always used in the New Testament to refer to a, a lasting. A permanent, a spiritual joy, not a, a temporal joy. Furthermore, it's in the present tense, indicating that this joy is to be a continual experience. For those who have experienced that new birth we learned last week, you should have this continual, extreme, great rejoicing in your heart for what God has done for you. Now, some non-Christians, they, they kind of balk at the idea of Christians having some sort of permanent joy. I mean, to them, that sounds ridiculous. Nobody is happy all the time. But we're not talking about happiness here. It is true. Nobody is happy all the time. But happiness is an emotion based on circumstances. It comes and goes. We're talking about joy. And joy is something different. Biblical joy is a permanent disposition resulting from a deep confidence that one has eternal life in Christ. Difficult times can can take your happiness down. But nothing can take away, rob a believer's true joy. Still, though, you may ask, but I mean, seriously. You're telling me that if if you get cancer, if you lose all your money, if you lose your loved ones, you're still going to have this joy? I mean, seriously? The answer is yes. How can that be? Let me explain it like this. Nothing can harm a believer's true joy because our joy is not based on personal circumstances. So if I lose... My health, I don't lose my joy because my joy is not based on my health. If I lose all my money, I don't lose my joy because my joy is not based on my money. If I even lose my loved ones, I still don't lose that joy because my joy is not based on people. At least not the joy we're talking about here. Rather true biblical joy, it's based on what we learned last week. God's great mercy, Christ's resurrection, the Spirit's work, all of that applied to us in salvation... Our joy ultimately rests on our eternal salvation brought to us by God. And that's a reality that can't change. God's mercy, Christ's resurrection, the Spirit's work, that's not going anywhere. That can't change no matter what happens to us. Therefore, whatever the circumstances may be, nothing can shake your true joy. And that's the difference between what we have in Christ and what the world fails to have. That's why we rejoice, not in ourselves. Not in our circumstances, we rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Speaking of suffering, as you know by now, Peter, he's writing to Christians who are suffering. And of all the things in life, suffering can really tempt you to take your eyes off Christ and focus instead on your circumstances. And that, in turn, can really diminish your joy. Never does the Bible deny the reality of pain and suffering. It's true. Never does it deny. Pain is real. Suffering is real. But the counsel is always the same. Don't take your eyes off Christ. Trials, they have a purpose. We're going to get to that. They have a purpose. But even in their midst, you need to focus on what God has done for you in the past, what he's doing for you in the present, and what he will do for you in the future. And it's this latter that this future anticipation of God's work that Peter specifically points out here. It's no matter what you're going through, even if it's general persecution or, or just persecution for the faith, there's this anticipatory joy where if you focus on your salvation, on what lies ahead, you can rejoice despite outward circumstances. And it is this confidence in the future that enables our faith to continue this anticipatory joy. It's it's hard to illustrate. Peter letter he says it's inexpressible. Can't really put it to words. But it's kind of like being a kid on Christmas Eve, waiting for the presents. I mean if you're if you're a family celebrating like secular Christmas, where it's all about the presents. If that were you, and that, that's how I grew up, then as a kid, Christmas Eve night, you could barely sleep. You had that anticipation of, of the what the next day held. And on Christmas Eve you'd have this Anticipatory joy of what the next day would hold. Now imagine being that kid, but you're you're sick, and so you're, you're kind of suffering. You don't feel very well. Would that change it anything? No. Even though you, you presently might be in some pain and discomfort, you would still have this anticipatory joy in what tomorrow holds. You're not rejoicing in your sickness. You're rejoicing in what the next day holds. And admittedly, it's, it's a trivial illustration, but. It helps to somewhat explain the joy that tr- Christians can know. As you focus on the future, you, you can really experience joy even though presently you might be suffering. That's how it works. And the closer you get to that future, closer you get to Christmas, so to speak, the more joy you can experience. Needless to say, this is the joy of faith. It's the second fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. It's second only to love. All true believers have this joy, and if they set their minds on things above, they can experience it to the fullest. This is the the joy of faith. But though faith comes with joy, it also comes with testing. That's our second reality. Number two here, the testing of faith. First was the joy of faith. Now secondly, the testing of faith. Verse six again, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Here, Peter exposes this, this contrast, this paradox of great rejoicing, even in the midst of trials and suffering. How's that possible? As we already said, the world has no answer. It's not their experience. When trials come, they have no real hope. But as we learned, our our joy is tied up in a, a confidence and anticipation of the future. And instead of stealing this anticipation, trials actually add to our anticipation of the future, and hence to our joy. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials, This word for distress, lupeo in the Greek, means to be grieved, to be made sorrowful. It's not really talking about the outward infliction of pain, but really that inward grief or sorrow or anguish that you feel from outward circumstances. The same word was used to describe the the grief that Christ was feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Christians Peter is writing to were experiencing a similar grief or anguish or sorrow. And if you study 1 Peter closely you can piece together the picture of what these believers were facing. For example, just look down at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, verse 12, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What we learn here is that these believers, they were being slandered, falsely accused. Elsewhere, we can piece together, they were being insulted, reviled, harshly treated, abused. It's true, although widespread and, and bloody Christian persecution had not begun yet by the time Peter was writing, still, both Jews and Gentiles with a, a malicious intent were trying to persecute Christians, take them down, make them just abandon the faith and give up hope. That's what they were trying to do. Back to verse 6, Peter, he labels these attacks as various trials. This word for trials, perosmos, can be translated in two ways depending on your intention. If your intention is to destroy someone's faith, then these are temptations. If your intention is to build or to prove someone's faith, then these are tests. And thankfully, God never tempts. He never seeks to destroy our faith, but he does test. He wants to build our faith. He wants to prove our faith. These trials or tests come in many colors. And that's what the word various actually means. It really means multicolor. It was used to describe the skin of a leopard or the different different colors of the veinings on marble. For Christians, trials can come in in many shapes and sizes. Verbal, physical, social, relational suffering for the faith, just suffering in general, God can test you in many different ways. It's like a thermostat on an oven. God can kind of turn up the heat as he needs to, whether He, if he needs to, to soften us or to shape us or even to burn off our dross. Again, though, as we'll see, his purpose is never to destroy. It's always to refine. Trying to provide comfort, Peter adds in verse 6 that these various trials are ours only for a little while. It's for a little while. Our testing in life its not permanent. Literally, these trials are for a season. As winter gives way to spring, everybody has bad times, good times. That being said, when you're in the valley in life and you're experiencing the suffering, it never feels like a short time. It feels like forever. But compared to eternity... Any suffering you might experience in life is just a millisecond; it comes and goes. Second Corinthians four seventeen: For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. There's one last phrase in verse six of First Peter one that we haven't seen yet. It's it's where he says, "If necessary." Do you see that? He says these trials may come to you if necessary. When you read that, you might think, well, well, hey, maybe I can escape hard times. Maybe it won't be necessary for me so I can escape affliction. Unfortunately, that's not what he means. This phrase, if necessary, it's what's called in the Greek a first-class condition. Basically, what that means is this. He's not saying, you know, if need be, you'll encounter trials. He's saying, you will encounter trials. If necessary, and it is, you will be tested. That's what he's saying. God necessarily tests the faith of all believers. Understand though, suffering is not good. Suffering is not good. It's, it's a terrible thing. It's a result of evil, sin, the fall. But God being totally sovereign, He's able to even use the bad for good. Romans 8.28 does not say all things are good. Not all things are good. But God being sovereign can use that which is not good for good. And that's what he does with trials in the lives of believers. He uses them for his good purposes. And what are his purposes? Well, We're almost there. We'll get to that in a second. But just understand for now and take comfort in the fact that he has a purpose in his trials, and his testings of you. God's people are never needlessly afflicted. When suffering, you may think God has forgotten you, abandoned you, but... When you're suffering the most, that's when God is paying the most attention to you. It's when He's working on you the most, crafting you the most. God does not send trials without purpose. Okay, you, may, you may understand this, you may get this, but still, you may think, well, this still sounds kind of cruel. I mean, if God is so loving, why wouldn't He just make sure all of our lives are nice, cushy, comfortable, rosy, very easygoing? Why wouldn't He do that? And if He's so powerful... Why wouldn't you just rescue us from every bad situation, all harm? Why wouldn't you do that? A lot of people have that question, and you have, you have to get this answer. You need to be able to answer that. And the answer is this. There are things more important to God than our temporary daily comfort. There are things more important to God than our temporary comfort in this life. For Christians, God, he's, he's thinking big picture. He's preparing us for eternity. And suffering does that. Suffering prepares us for eternity. We recently took our daughter Olivia for our two-month immunity shots. And to her, the pain of the needle probably seemed endless. But we purposely inflicted pain upon her to give her a lifetime of protection. We did it on purpose. And likewise, God, He can use affliction purposefully to prepare us for an eternity of protection and care. God does love us. He will rescue us for all of eternity. But for now, he's preparing us for that. Think about this, the best way I could think of explaining it. What's better, 4-karat gold or 24-karat gold? Okay, most of you know 24 karat gold. That's that's the best you can do. 24 karat, it's the highest rating, which means you have pure gold. No other metals are mixed in to diminish it. It's pure gold. It's the best. I was looking at my ring actually when I was reading about this. I looked on the inside. It's got a little inscription. It's 14 karat, which I thought was pretty good, but it's it's, you you want 24 karat. That's the point. That's like the best. Now, how do you get 24 karat gold? You just can't, you know, dust off the other metals. It's not that easy. You have to put it through the fire. You have to refine it, purify it, test it, prove it. To God, what's the most important thing about us? It's not our comfort. It's our faith. God wants 24-karat faith. And that's why he sends trials. He puts us in the furnace from time to time to refine our faith to test it, to see it approved. No goldsmith ever melts gold for the purpose of destroying it, but always for the purpose of perfecting it, making it better. That's the same with God. Through trials we are refined, we're made fit for heaven, we're prepared for eternity, and our faith, it's made more valuable, more pleasing to God. That's what he's doing. He wants a more valuable faith. And commentator named Helm, he gives another great example I want to throw in here. A bar of iron ore pulled from the earth, just an iron iron ore made into a bar. It's worth five bucks, I guess, whenever he was writing. The same bar, if you were to fashion it into horseshoes, will get you $10.50. If that bar is made into needles for sewing, it can get you $3,285.00. And if that bar is made into springs for watches, it can get you $250,000. Now, it's all the same iron. It's all just one bar of iron. What's the difference? The difference is the amount of heat and shaping and refining the bar went through to increase its value. And likewise, you may be on the anvil of suffering, but you need to understand that God is simply... He's working at at just crafting you into something more valuable. That's what he's doing. This is the testing of your faith, secondly. This is the testing of your faith. That's what he does. But God, he's not interested in the test itself. That's not his goal. He's interested in what comes next. This brings us to our third point, the third reality, the proof of faith. Number three now, the proof of faith. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God sends trials our way for many reasons, To humble us, to cause us to depend on him, to purify us, to eliminate the sin in our lives, to loosen our grip on this world, even to enable us to encourage others. Yet God's overall design, it's always positive. He tests to prove, not to destroy. And passing the test results in the proof of faith. Here in verse 7, Peter introduces this gold analogy of his own. And his purpose in this analogy is twofold. First, he's saying that genuine faith is more precious to God than gold because gold, although it's valuable, it's still perishable. But gold, imperishable. Or rather, excuse me, faith, imperishable. Gold, perishable. Faith, imperishable. God wants faith. Gold, mentioned 385 times in the Bible. And it's often used to represent that which we value the most. And if you think about it, it's really universal. Every culture, every generation, every age, everyone in the world always values gold. It's just their thing. It's what they value the most. A few people, though, have realized that life is not all about gold. Gold is not the most precious thing. Unfortunately, not everyone has the best substitute. They don't get it right. In 1900, L. Frank Baum published his novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz which became a popular movie in 1939. I'm sure you've heard of it. However, many people don't know that his novel was originally a satire, a political satire revolving around gold. Baum, the author, as well as many other politicians of the day, they believed back then that the solution to America's economic woes was to add silver coinage to the then gold standard. Remember, we used to be on the gold standard, and they said, we need to add silver. You need to add a silver standard to the gold. They're all about silver. And so this argument was allegorically embedded into the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy represents the American people who need to find their way home. The Tin Man represents industrial workers. Scarecrow represents farmers. The Cowardly Lion represents politicians who supported the free silver movement but needed courage to support silver. These four, as you know, they travel along the Yellow Book Road, to get to the Emerald City, where they can find the Wizard of Oz, who will solve all of their problems, Now, the yellow brick roll. Road uh, represents the gold standard. Emerald City represents greenbacks, or the dollar. And then what about the Wizard of Oz? Well, O-Z, Oz, that's the abbreviation for ounces, which is the standard way to measure gold. He's gold. As you may remember, when they get there, they get to the Wizard of Oz, they find out. He's no wizard. He's a phony. He's a sham. He's the man behind the curtain. He just manipulates people through smoke and mirrors, but he has no real power. And hence, they're teaching, or he's teaching, gold. It's just a sham. It's not, it's not the answer. There's no real power. Dorothy then learns that she had the power to get back home all along. All she had to do was, remember, click her heels three times and just make a wish, and she'd get there. And in the movie, her shoes were ruby, but in the book, guess what, her shoes Silver. And they're teaching that silver, get you anywhere you want to go. All you need was silver. And you had it all along. Anyway, like I said, some people have realized that life is not all about gold. Gold's not the most important thing, but they still get it wrong. I only wish Baum had realized that even silver is not the answer, the real answer to man's problems. Thankfully, Peter gets the answer. Silver, gold, the dollar, whatever. They all have some value, but at the end of the day, the point he's making is they're still going to burn they're perishable what really matters what will really solve our problems is salvation by faith faith is what matters Matthew 16:26 for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul Christ could have asked how much gold is your soul worth? The answer is not enough. Never enough. What God really values is faith. And that's going to last for eternity. Peter makes another point with this gold metaphor. He he strikes a comparison. Gold and faith, they're both improved or purified through fire. So he's making another point here. The argument is from the lesser to the greater. John Calvin comments. He says, If gold, a corruptible metal is deemed of so much value that we prove it by fire that it may become really valuable. What wonder is it that God should require a similar trial of faith since since faith is deemed by him so excellent, end quote. point he's making is, like gold, it's so valuable to us that we will put it through intense heat to make it more valuable. And to God, faith is so valuable to him that he will put it through intense heat to make it more valuable. That's the analogy. That's the comparison. And since faith, as we already learned, is more precious in God's eyes than gold, then it should all the more be purified, refined, proved. When God subjects us to testing, he does two things to our faith. He's doing two things when he tests us. Number one, he purifies it. He purifies it. Gold Like we said, it can be mixed with impurities. Other metals can be in there to lessen its value, spoil its beauty. That's why it needs to be refined to get that 24 carats. So what they do is, goldsmith will take some gold, put it in the crucible, put it in a furnace, melt it. Once it melts, all the impurities rise to the surface, and then they skim them off the top. And all that's remaining is pure gold. Likewise, though, our faith contains impurities, we have doubt mixed in, sin mixed in to our even-saving faith. We need to be purified. So through the, the crucible of trials, these impurities are purged. And what remains is a more pleasing, more powerful, more acceptable faith to God. We see this with Christ's disciples. You know, for the longest time, their faith was just weak and shallow. But over time, through trials and tribulations, what did God do to their faith? He strengthened, solidified, proved it such that they became so strong they could become, by God's grace, the pillars of the early church. And God's doing the same thing with you. And this is all to his glory. So through trials, God, number one, he purifies faith. That's the first thing he does through trials. He purifies faith. Secondly, he proves faith. That's the second thing he does through trials. He proves faith. God tests to reveal Faith's genuineness—not so that he can know, but that so so that we can know. You know, picture this: you're a goldsmith, you want to refine some gold. So you just take an ounce, you throw it in the crucible, you put it in the furnace. It starts to melt, but then it starts to boil, and then it evaporates. It just disintegrates. It's gone right before your eyes. What would that tell you? It would tell you you had some fool's gold. You weren't dealing with real gold. You had fake gold, because real gold cannot evaporate. And it's the same with faith. Trials prove, or for some, disprove, the reality of their faith. This is precisely what Jesus said in the parable of the sower. This is the seed sown on rocky ground. Matthew 13, 20, he said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. See, there's just that initial joy. But... Verse 21, he has no firm root in himself. He's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls falls away. As quickly as he had joy, just as quick he runs away. True faith, however, passes the test. It survives the persecution it endures, the hardship, and thus it is proven, tested, perfected. James tells us even that Abraham's faith was not perfected until God gave him the trial of being willing to sacrifice his own son. And likewise God wants to see a proven 24-karat faith in you. And he'll use trials to get it. But take heart, for if you have if you truly have faith in Jesus, if you really trust him for salvation, your faith will not fail. God will strengthen you. That you will be refined and not consumed. And if you do endure to the end, you have the result of faith. Look at verse 7 again. There's there's a result. It says So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, or rather, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation of Christ means His return. That His return, your tested and proven faith will result in praise, glory, and honor. Now, salvation—of course, we give God all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. But actually, what Peter is meaning here is, is that when we see Christ, we will receive praise, glory, and honor. It may sound a little strange, because you know, only to God be the glory. But that's what, it's actually a common teaching in the New Testament. Romans 2.7, we receive glory, honor, immortality. Romans 2.10, we receive glory, honor, peace. Philippians 1.1, we receive glory and praise. Romans 2.29, 1 Corinthians 4.5, each man's praise will come to him from God. And really what this is teaching is nothing other than what Jesus taught in the parable of the talents. That the faithful, the faithful servant at the end of the day will receive a commendation from the master master will say to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. This is the praise we're talking about here. It's not based on merit. It's based on God's grace. And every Christian knows, we know this, that we do not deserve any commendation. We don't deserve a single well done. We're no better than anyone else. Our, our faith and our faithfulness both come to us by the gift of God. But still, God gives us that well done verdict and it's just based on his grace. And really what's happening is, any glory, honor, and praise we receive just gets redirected and reflected back to God. Just as the moon forever reflects the glory of the sun, so forever we will reflect the glory of Christ. And this is what's waiting for those who endure to the end. Let's move on now. We've got a couple more. We'll be briefer with these last two. Number four now, the fourth reality of faith, the object of faith. Let's get into verse eight here. Number four the object of faith. Verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly re- rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here we have the object of faith, which is, of course, Christ, our Savior. And some of you may at times you know, look back on the apostles almost almost with Envy because they got to see Christ and talk with him. But here we actually get a hint of Peter envying others. You see, in a sense, their faith was greater because they never saw Jesus, but they still believed. And that's the type of faith that pleases God. As Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, blessed are to those who do not see and yet believe. And today, if you know Jesus... You are likewise blessed. Jesus here is the object of our faith. Our faith is in the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ, fully God, fully man. Sinless humanity and true deity in one. And his work. he, He sacrificed himself on the cross so that in death he might pay the penalty for our sins. Because we owe this through our sin. All of us have this infinite debt before God that we cannot repay. If we are forced to pay for it ourselves... It would require an eternity of separation and suffering for our sin if we were on our own. But Christ stepped in and through his death and resurrection we can access the forgiveness that we need, even the righteousness that we need to be made acceptable to God, to be brought to heaven by him. Being freed from our sin, we may dwell with God in heaven forever if we have faith in Christ. Regarding Jesus, the object of faith, Peter says in verse 8, That we love Him, we believe in Him. You got love and trust. Really, the two necessary elements of any relationship. Love and trust. Loving God, trusting God, they're all over, made equivalent to faith in God throughout the Old and New Testament. And it's really, it's based on this love-trust relationship with Christ that He says we come to at the end, greatly rejoice, with joy inexpressible and, and full of glory. Again, Peter mentions our great rejoicing, just about like in verse 6. But this time, it's even greater. He says that we greatly rejoice, and now it's an inexpressible. This means, of course, you can't quite communicate it. You can't put it to words. Unbelievers, they can never quite experience or understand the joy that we have as believers. You can't really explain it to them. That being said, although they, you can't fully describe it to them, Once they receive it, they immediately know what you're talking about. It's like trying to explain the glory of the sun to a man who's been born blind. You just can't do it. It's just inexpressible. But if he miraculously gained his sight, went outside, looked up into the sky, he would know that's the sun, isn't it? He would just know. That's the same thing. Peter says that this joy is full of glory which is why it's so inexpressible. Some things are just too glorious, too magnificent to contain in words. Someday we're going to understand why God didn't tell us everything there is to know about heaven because you just can't put some things into words. Some things are just too glorious to put into words. But the point here is that we can experience this joy even now, even before we see what's to come because we have what's to come in Christ. We don't have our Savior right before us, but we have a relationship with him. We know he's coming back. We know what awaits. So we can rejoice. Even in the middle of testing, the fire, the crucible, we can rejoice in Christ in this relationship, this salvation. And someday our salvation will be made complete. And this brings us to our last point, the last reality of faith. Number five, the outcome of faith. The outcome of faith. We'll start at verse eight again. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Bible speaks of our past, present, and future salvation. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. All three are true. But it's the latter that Peter's pointing out here. I will be saved. This future, final salvation. Christ has already freed us from the power of sin, the position of sin, but we still wait for that time where we will be freed from the very presence of sin. That's our final salvation. Scripture calls it glorification. And it comes one way. And only one way is through faith. This salvation is the outcome of your tested and approved faith. You know, today everybody wants proof. They want you to prove the Bible, prove Christ, prove faith. They don't want to believe, they want to see. But guess what? God actually proves faith. He proves it to you. He will prove your faith to you. He proves salvation to you. He will give you proof. It's just that, This proof comes in the form of trials. Pass the test. There's your proof. If you endure until the end, you have your proof. God is faithful. He he has chosen you. He will keep you. But you must remain faithful and in the faith. Understand the purpose and place of hardships as being the fire through which God refines you and remain steadfast in your joy in Him. This is really summed up by Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm sure you've all heard of Charles Spurgeon, but have you heard of John Rapon? Rapon was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London just before Spurgeon, and he's not famous for his preaching, he's famous for his hymns hymns that he wrote there. I want to leave you with this. Close with this. A few verses from his famous hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Read you a few verses. Reflect on these words. Really just recapping, summing up everything we've been blessed with this morning. He writes, How Firm a Foundation. Fear not, I am with with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee. Help thee, cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we reflect on even these words of this hymn. Though uninspired, it is nonetheless true. You'll never forsake us. We are your children. You have called us before time began. You have brought us to the reality of salvation even now. How could you possibly lose us? How could you possibly forsake us? You, you can't, and we know you can. not We thank you and we rest assured in that. And what you have done for us, what you will do for us, and we look to that. That's our hope, that's our joy, and the future that awaits for us. And though, Lord, even though now we may suffer, we will suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise, living this fallen world. We can nonetheless rejoice that we have you. We've got Christ, we have salvation, and that's really all I need. That's what our joy is, is based on. So I pray now for those even here who are suffering. There are people now, I know it. They're just suffering. They're going through a difficult time. Whether it's persecution for the faith or just suffering in general, they're going through the crucible, the fire, the testing. I pray now that they may be encouraged this morning, understanding the purpose of their testing is to grow their faith, to find themselves approved. Help them now to endure. And help them, Lord, to have even a joy that can endure the harshest of flames. We know you're good. You don't afflict to destroy. You afflict to perfect. And so we just trust that goodness. We cling to you. Bless us as we go through the furnace. May we just find our hope and join you. And we do that now, Lord. Thank you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.